Welcome back to The Faith Explained. It's Gail Clark alongside you. I'd like you to open up your Bible to Romans chapter 8. We're going to actually finish off the first half of the letter to the Romans today. And of course, we'll start off with where we left off last time. And that's Romans 8, 28, one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. And in our previous episode, we talked about how most people misunderstand this verse. It's sometimes mistranslated. We know that all things work for good for those who love God. That's how it's sometimes translated. But probably the best translation is what we have in the Revised Standard Version, Second Catholic Edition. We know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him. In other words, we need to partner with God and bring about his good in the world. It's part of our, of our vocation. And we have sometimes calls within a call, as Mother Teresa used to say. Uh, we have a, a baptismal call to holiness and apostolate, but sometimes we have other calls, marriage, uh, perhaps a call to the religious life, another vocation, perhaps the vocation to Opus Dei, or another vocation in the church. Whatever that might be, we are called to partner with God in bringing about his plans in the world. But there's still that element, of course, of God superintending these situations as only he can do, providentially arranging them to his ends. So let's look at the, the passage in context here, starting with Romans 8.28, the final section of Romans 8. Paul writes, we know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Is it Christ Jesus who died? Yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a powerful passage. What a great way to end off the chapter. But let's look through it here, verse by verse. And this, this whole idea that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We, we see this this passage read very often whenever there's uh, the feast of a martyr, the feast of saints Perpetua and Felicity. That this is one of the scriptures that's read there. The common of martyrs. We see this. The faithful departed when they are commemorated. We have to understand nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not even death itself. 
beautiful. And so really, again, what the overarching theme here, and this was sort of in the little passage before the one we read today, this idea that if we're ever tempted to think that if we're suffering in life, we're somehow out of God's will. And this is, again, another destruction of the health and wealth gospel, the idea that if I'm healthy and wealthy and wise and God has blessed me, but if I'm not, if I'm suffering or uh, ill has befallen me. God must be displeased with me. There must be some sin in my life that's blocking his grace and power. This is a lie from the pit of hell. If we are suffering in life, that does not mean that God is displeased with us. In fact, it might be a sign of his predilection. He has graced us with a cross that is heavy, and, and maybe he's trusting us to carry that cross and, and suffer its splinters. But as St. Paul really wants to show us here, This is God's way of conforming us to his son, the grace of the hammer blows, the blows of the chisel to sculpt us into the image of Christ, interiorly speaking. As St. Jose Maria Escrivá writes in his spiritual masterwork, The the Way, point number 56, I love this one. He writes, the stuff of saints. This is said of some people that they have the stuff of saints. Apart from the fact that the saints were not made of stuff, to have stuff is not sufficient. A great spirit of obedience to the director and great docility to grace are essential. For if you don't allow God's grace and your director to do their work, there will never appear the finished sculpture, the image of Christ, into which the saintly man is fashioned. And the stuff of which we were speaking will be no more than a heap of shapeless matter, fit only for the fire, for a good fire, if it was good stuff. That's one of my my favorite points. You've got to allow the grace of God and your spiritual director to do their work. Otherwise, the finished sculpture will never appear. The sculpted image of Christ, the sculpted image of Jesus. And yeah, certainly on the outside, I don't have the sculpted image of Christ, but interiorly, that's what we're going for. And we'll talk about the outside as well in just a second. There, God has a plan for that too. But this is the, the ideal. And sometimes these, these sufferings, these crosses that we undergo are, are what help to shape us into the image of his son. So it might seem to humanize like we've been defeated, but this is where God gains his greatest victory. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. The devil thought he had Jesus dead to rights. He thought, this is it. I've won. He's laughing. Christ is on the cross. But theologians talk about the Christus Victor theory, how God outsmarted the devil. Of course he will. He turned the tables. And this is what gave the greatest victory, the the ability to forgive sins and and to set us free from the trap of the evil one. And so in the same way, God can gain great victories in our lives and what seem like tragedies, what seem like defeats. And so this is why he writes, we know that all things work for good with those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And so on the, per- on the personal level, that is true, but also in terms of the history of the world, that is also the case. Now, on the Faith Explained program in the past, we looked at the book of Genesis and the figure of Joseph is another type of Christ because, of course, Joseph was betrayed by his very brothers. He was thrown into a pit. He was sold off into slavery and left for dead. They're going to kill him, but they said, oh, let's make some money off him. Let's sell him into slavery instead. And of course, 
God used Joseph to save those very brothers and so many others who had betrayed him. And so when he reveals his identity, and I don't think I'm revealing something you don't already know, when he revealed his identity to his brothers in the midst of this great famine, and he was now the number two man in all of Egypt, and they realized, oh my goodness, this is Joseph. He's going to kill us. He's alive. He said, even though you meant harm to me, Joseph speaking to his brothers here, even though you meant harm to me, God meant it for good to achieve this present end, the survival of many people. That's Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And in the same way, the death of Christ, which seemed at a human level through natural eyes, such an unbearable tragedy was in fact the great victory of God. And so, as Scott Hahn says in his commentary on Romans, there's something we really have to keep in mind, something that Paul said earlier. When, uh, when he writes in Romans 8.28, we know that all things work for good with those who love God, with those who are called according to his purpose. With those who love God, if we love God, they will work together for the good. Now, how do we know this? How, how can we be sure that we're loving God? Well, back in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, St. Paul wrote this, hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So God's given us his love, the ability to love him. And so as Han says, if you put two and two together, divine providence is working good for those who are living according to the Spirit. If we're in step with the Spirit, we can see God's purposes for our lives and for the world big picture. So this is really, really important to do that. So loving God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, how can you be sure that you're loving God? Well, Jesus is very, very clear about this in John chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, Jesus says, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So don't fool yourself. If you love God, you'll obey the commandments. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. All right, let's look at the next couple of verses here. Romans 8.29 and 8.30. Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This hits on something that maybe you've thought about Maybe it's even been a real issue for you, this idea of predestination. And in the Protestant world, especially in Reformed Calvinism, there is this thought of this this theological doctrine, which is promulgated by John Calvin. He was kind of the second big gun in the Protestant Revolution after Luther. This idea of a double predestination, that God predestined some people to go to heaven from all eternity, and they're called the elect. And then he also predestines people, according to this doctrine, he predestines some people to go to hell. This is a monstrous doctrine, and it is absolutely not true. The scriptures are very clear, or so it seems, that God does not desire anyone to perish, but that everyone would be saved. And this is why it's so important to have a magisterium, the teaching office of the Catholic Church, because During my years away from the church, when I was in the Protestant seminary, I remember taking a course on salvation, and we looked at a book called The Cross and Salvation by this uh, theologian named Bruce Demarest, came from a Reformed Calvinist background, and I'm telling you, 
he made an absolutely convincing case, the best I've ever heard, for this doctrine of a double predestination. And there are passages in the Old Testament, if you cherry-pick a few verses here and there, maybe even a lot of verses, that say, well, God is the potter, we are the clay. And, and God has the right to fashion some pottery, some vessels for noble use, and others for ignoble use. In other words, they're not going to make it to heaven. But they still play a part in his overall plan. God can do whatever he wants. He's never checked with you or I about anything. And while that is certainly true, he is sovereign. His desire is not for anyone to go to hell. Now, some people are undoubtedly there. There's no question about it. God has given us free will. So sometimes people, I think, confuse this idea of predestination with God's divine foreknowledge. And we would certainly say God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows what you're going to do. But he's not making you do it. You still have free will. You're still responsible for the choices that you make. If there's no free will, there's no love. And God is looking for a loving relationship. He didn't want to create puppets. He didn't want to create robots who would always do his will. You can only love if there is true freedom. It's like in the wedding vows of the Catholic Church. Have you come here freely? Or is your mother-in-law making you do this? No, that's not the right answer. So it's very important to understand that, that God can sovereignly move pieces around on the chessboard of life and he can arrange people places events to put you in a position where you know his will and he's constantly doing this and sometimes we're not open and aware to what he's doing but ultimately at the end of the day the choice is yours and so this is something that we always have to keep in mind there's a difference between divine foreknowledge and this double predestination so having said that though there's no question that god's will is for you to be in heaven. God's will is for you to be conformed to the image of his son. We've got to look at him, like him. We've got to look like Jesus, not just on the inside. We've got to have the sculpted image of Christ, but also on the outside too. Well, how can we do that, Eric? Can we just hit the gym a little harder next year? No. He's talking about the general resurrection at the end of time. And, and Han also makes this point too, that Adam... And of course, we've already seen Paul use this image of Jesus as the second Adam. He succeeds in every way that Adam fails. But Adam was made in the image of God, Genesis 1.27. We now know that Jesus, the risen Lord, is in fact the image of God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, St. Paul writes, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So, wow. We, and here's the deal, as he also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that famous chapter on the resurrection, in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, Paul writes, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What's he talking about? Well, of course, we are right now bearing the image of Adam, as it were, but we've got to put on this resurrected body. We've got to bear the image of the man of heaven. The way Jesus is now, resurrected, glorified, elevated over all creation, reigning the right hand of the Father. So th this, is, this is also part of our future hope here that's uh, such a big, big part of Romans chapter 8. And, and I, I also love this too, this idea of the firstborn over all creation, the only begotten Son of God, but he's also the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So this idea of the firstborn, as Han points out, in the Old Covenant, it wasn't just about who was born first. And we know that in the, in the 
ancient patriarchal societies, the firstborn son basically becomes the head of the family upon the death of the father. He actually gets a double inheritance from the father. The other kids don't get that. Seems kind of unfair. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 21. But if you look at the, the human family as a whole, Adam and Eve were the firstborn children of God. They had dominion over all of creation, as we see in Genesis chapter 1. And the same is true for Israel. Among all the nations, Israel is God's firstborn son. And Matthew plays upon this in his gospel, in the infancy narrative. Matthew quotes the Old Testament, out of Egypt I have called my son, God says. He's talking about the Exodus, how God draws Israel away from slavery in Egypt into their own land. In Exodus 4.22, God tells Moses, go and say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. You got to let him go. You got to let him go. And then there was also the kings of Israel later on, the Davidic kings, the kings in the line of David, they were also called the firstborn sons of God. You can look at Psalm 2 for a great example of that. Psalm 89, 27, 89, 26. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. So as Han points out, the way that St. Paul looks at this, the way St. Paul looks at Jesus, all of those things coalesce in the one person of Jesus Christ. He is the heir of the kingdom of the Father, the kingdom of God. He is the second Adam, the new Adam. He reclaims the glory, the dominion that should have been under the reign of the old Adam. He's also the faithful son of Israel, the faithful Israelite. And he fulfills the plan of God for the nation as a whole, kind of in this one point of his person. And he is the son of David, the Messiah, who is going to be enthroned and rule over all, just as David ruled. So this is just absolutely beautiful in Romans chapter 8. Okay, let's look at the next section here. The very, very last few verses of Romans chapter 8. Let's look at Romans 8.31. And Paul starts kind of acting like a lawyer here. Um, This would be a great courtroom drama scene. You know, he's, he's kind of proclaiming passionately to the jury. He's got a series of rhetorical questions, and Paul was very schooled in rhetoric. Would have been a great preacher. And he said this, What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who is against us? And obviously the answer is, God's for us. Nobody can stand against us. There's no question about that. So you know the answer to that. I know the answer to that. We've got to internalize it. We can't just know it intellectually. You've got to actually put it into practice. So we cannot... In light of everything that Jesus has done for us, as Paul's been talking about up to this point in Romans, how could we ever doubt his love? And yet we do. We need to be reminded of this time and time again. He's arranged everything providentially in our lives. Even for you to be listening to this program right now at this moment on Relevant Radio. And he's asking you to trust him more and more and more because he's done all of this for you. We've got to leave it there. We've run out of time, but don't worry. We've still got a little bit more in this episode. A great question from the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. I'm your host, Cale Clark, and let's dip into the mailbag on the Faith Explained right now. Okay, as we open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag right now, I've got a question from Mary who writes in via email, and you can email your question to me as well. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. And here's what Mary writes. 
She says, Ukale stated that Jesus Christ, the Emmanuel of Nazareth, the Son of Man, is present at every Roman Catholic Mass in the Communion Eucharist. This body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus is directly touched by the communicant when he or she receives the host. In Mark chapter 5, verse 25 in the Bible, a woman with a chronic hemorrhage of 12 years came up in a crowd of people following Jesus and touched his cloak. Immediately her flow of blood dried up. She felt that her body was healed, aware that power had gone out of him. Jesus told the woman, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be cured of your affliction. The woman touched his cloak, not his body. At Mass, we Catholics actually touch his body, blood, soul, and divinity. This is what the popes and the Catholic Catechism rules teach. But what is really happening? Nothing happens at Mass. Nothing. By the way, this is her talking. If you're just tuning in, I'm reading an email. I'm not saying this. Uh, she writes, what's really happening at Mass? Nothing. There are no miracles. If we touch the actual body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, all of our afflictions would be healed. So all we're touching is a memorial of Jesus Christ's Last Supper. In a similar fashion, the Jews have a memorial day for their Passover. No firstborn Egyptians are going to die on Passover day. I have attended at least 3,600 Roman Catholic Masses. No cripple in a wheelchair ever left his wheelchair behind in church and walked out. After 2,000 years, the Roman Catholic Church and its theology are crumbling. And then she goes on to write about uh, the corruption and the clergy and all kinds of moral issues, and, and which are not germane necessarily to, to this question uh, of the Eucharist, although clearly there, there are problems that they need to be dealt with as well. But this uh, email from Mary, who sounds to me like somebody who has left the Catholic Church and, and become a, uh, maybe a Protestant Christian, I hope that you come back to the Catholic Church if that is the case, Mary. She has some questions that people do ask about the Eucharist. How come we don't see miracles, people being healed left, right, and center at every Mass if Jesus is really present? Well, that that, that is a very good question. Why is that the case? Well, keep in mind... Keep in mind, Mary, that even during Jesus' earthly ministry, he could not do many miracles, it says, in his hometown, because there was a lot of doubt. There, and I think maybe maybe if there were was more faith in the Eucharist, more things would happen. That is, that's not to be discounted, for sure. It does take faith to believe that Jesus is really present. because It actually takes more faith than to, to look at uh, Jesus in Nazareth in his earthly body and say, yeah, He's more than a carpenter. This is God incarnate, God the Son. It takes even more faith to believe in the Eucharist because both the divinity and his humanity are hidden from our human senses, as we know. So how can we really answer this and people who, who, who think like this? There's, there's a lot of things that we could say here, but I would say, first of all, there have been, of course, Mary, Eucharistic miracles. I, I'm, I'm hoping that you're aware, and if not, if you're not aware of this, you should certainly look it up. Google this. The Eucharistic miracle that happened in the 8th century in Lanciano, Italy. A priest, of course, was doubting. He didn't believe necessarily in the real presence either. And during the Mass, when he said the words of consecration, this is my body, this is my blood, the bread, the accidents were taken away, if you will. The appearance of bread. He saw what was really there. The bread before his eyes became living flesh. 
of course, what was thought to be by him only wine mixed with a little bit of water was seen visibly to become blood, which coagulates into five globules, different shapes and sizes. And you know that in the 1970s, uh, Pope Paul VI actually allowed the Eucharistic miracle of Lanciano, the host is still there, to be dissected by scientists, and they found that it was the flesh of a human heart. And the blood type was AB. Now, some preachers used to say Jesus' blood type was O, the universal donor. That would have been a great preaching ad, but uh, it was actually blood type AB in that host. And, and living tissue, it had all the properties of living tissue. And there are many, many more Eucharistic miracles like this that have happened uh, throughout the ages. And why don't things like that happen during every Mass? Well, a lot of people ask this question. But we don't, here's the thing, we don't need these miracles to happen at every Mass to believe that the real presence is a fact. And, and don't forget, St. Thomas Aquinas, in his one of his marvelous hymns about the Eucharist, there's a great little line, Prestet fides supplementum sensuum defectui, in Latin, which means something along the lines of, faith will provide a supplement when the senses fail. Because we can, we, can just, it's, we can say, it's only bread. It seems like it's bread. It tastes like bread. It still looks like bread. But it's not bread anymore. It is the body of Christ. And I can't resist one more little anecdote. Whether it's a true story or not, I, I may not ever find out. But King St. Louis IX, St. Louis IX, there was a reported miracle in a church in Paris in the 13th century while he was king. I can't, I'm not quite sure what this was. It might have been people claiming that Christ actually appeared in his physical resurrected body in the church. They asked St. Louis, hey, what, if you were there, what would you have done? Like, what would you, would you have fallen flat on your face in worship? What would you have done, O King? And he said, well, you know, if the consecration had already happened at Mass, I would have simply closed my eyes and prayed because Christ was already there after the consecration happened. He was really there already body blood soul and divinity and that's all you need to know so he whether that's a, a legend or not that there is a great truth there that the same jesus is in fact there at every mass and though we may not get what we think the kind of miracles that should be happening at every mass some of that has to do with how we're how receptive we are to god uh, no doubt that plays a part but in God's wisdom, that doesn't happen all the time. It does happen sometimes, though, to buttress our faith in the sacraments, such as these great Eucharistic miracles of all time. But really, we've got to work on our faith muscle. And because nothing is truer than the, the words of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, as Thomas Aquinas says uh, in his beautiful Eucharistic hymn, we've got to trust in his words. And I think you should trust in those words too, Mary. But thank you for writing, and I'll certainly pray for you. If anybody else out there has a question for me, uh, you can write to me. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, and I'll try to read it on the air in our Q&A mailbag segment. And I hope that you will do that. You can also follow me on social media on the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. Try to get your question to me on that particular platform. And I'll see you in the next episode of The Faith Explained. I would ask that you would... Share this episode with a friend. They're great podcast sharing tools on the Relevant Radio app. Just click on an episode. There's a little arrow button, and you can share it with a friend. It's quick, and it's easy. We're also available on all podcast platforms, rather, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to share. Give us a rating and review. It helps people to find our 
shows. And I'll catch you later today, also live on The Kale Clark Show, 5 p.m. Central, right here on Relevant Radio. Keep it locked. I'll see you in the next one. Peace.